Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough from the Lone Star Policy Institute. I'm back, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back. Yeah. Anything happened while I was gone? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, not of it. None, none of it any good. Okay, so uh, the topic for today, uh, obviously, is topic A, the coronavirus and all the different fallout from that. And uh, we have Gold Star Urbane Cowboys guest, Razib Khan, back on the program with us. So, Razib, welcome. Hey, everybody. Yeah. Uh, am, I, so, am, I, am I still the most frequent guest? Yeah, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely okay. the most frequent guest. Although, okay. uh, yeah, I, I think I think you're at four and maybe Michael Hendricks is at three. Yeah, so Michael Hendricks now, he cause, because he just guest hosted, so that's kind of two and a half. Yeah, I guess so. I, I, I do okay. want to thank, uh, before we get started, I do want to thank uh, Michael and Clark, uh, you know, for, for stepping in while I was gone. I've been listening to the shows. It's been really good. Uh, and good job for you, uh, Doug, as well, keeping things flowing uh, without my brilliance, you know. <laughs> so uh, maybe, Razib, you know, like, there's so, there's so many different things to talk about here. As we were talking before we hit record, I went back and I was looking and actually the last podcast that I did before I went on paternity leave, uh, which came out on February 17th, was on coronavirus. And it was it was uh, really more focused on China, although there was a little stuff. We did talk a little bit at the end about it, you know, because that was right. It was right around the time that I think you were seeing some spread in South Korea and also Singapore. And of course, since then, you know, it's kind of busted out all over the place, except for Singapore. They, at, at least uh, up until this point, seem to have kept it contained. Maybe, you know, maybe that's changing. I don't know. But so much has happened since then. The You know, the world seems like a, a very different place. And you, I know, were one of the early alarm. You, you, you were like you were like that crazy guy at the beginning of the disaster movie. Razib, uh, who's warning everybody, and they're like, what's, what's, what's with this weirdo, mm-hmm. you know? And then later on, they're like, oh, the giant asteroid did hit the Earth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so let me ask you, Josiah, though. It's like, this has been, the last month and a half have been, I mean, last two months have been really weird. And was I really like that? I mean, I've, I feel like that I was a relative moderate COVID hawk, but some people, like, I don't know, seem to perceive that I was, because I, I was actually keeping it to, a lot of it to myself, to be entirely frank, because I didn't want to seem crazy. Yeah, I guess so, and uh, that's true. Some of, I guess, some of what I'm thinking of is, more, you know, I know that we were having private conversations about it, uh, and also your co-host at, at one of your other blogs, Spencer Wells. He's become very alarmist. So, yeah, let me let me just tell you generally, um, you, the listeners out there. So, uh, for those who don't remember me, because they are lax people and they got onto this podcast late, I'm Razib Khan. I'm director of science at Incytome, which is a personal genetics company. I am trained as a geneticist. I am not a virologist, uh, nor do I play one on the internet. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, you know, I, I have been keeping track of this. My history with COVID-19, coronavirus, Wuhan flu, whatever you want to call it, um, actually goes back into January. Uh, my daughter is learning Mandarin Chinese. 
And so we order a lot of books from China and from Singapore. And my wife knows some Chinese. She can read and understand some. And she started paying attention to what was going on in Wuhan, partly because we had friends who are from that area. And, you know, one of the Chinese people my family knows, this woman who comes over periodically, was talking about her family being in, in, in lockdown. And they weren't in Hubei, but they were the next province over. And it seemed really disturbing. And, um, you know, from a scientific perspective, I remember around January 20th or so, I believe, um, R-naughts. So R-naught is the parameter that basically describes how quickly the infection spreads. So an R-naught of two is one infected person will spread it to two people. An R-naught of one is one infected person will spread it to one person and so forth. And so you want the R-naught to be below one for a disease. And the R-naught was high. It was two and a half to four, depending on how you estimated it. And I remember kind of having a semi-technical conversation with my wife explaining how, well, actually, R-naughts usually decline over time for reasons of evolution and adaptation and behavior of individuals. And I was also explaining, um, you know, their comorbidities uh, that are possibly unique to Hubei and the Wuhan area. We don't know. Um, so I was definitely not an alarmist around January 20th. And then on the 23rd, I believe, Wuhan went into lockdown. Now, there were a lot of tragic stories that we heard about um, in in the Chinese social media and TikTok, um, you know, people being shut in, um, parents, you know, being taken away, leaving a four or three year old alone at the house who the neighbors have to take care of but can't interact with in detail because of social distancing. Um, I don't need to go into that. You guys can look in Google or wherever. I mean, I think there's been some scrubbing happening by the Chinese government. Around February 1st, I started talking to uh, my friend Greg Cochran, who um, is a, uh, he's a, he's a physicist, but you know, he's done some modeling and work in uh, virology and, and, you know, pathogens and whatnot. And um, actually, like, it was somewhere in the first week of February. Around February 5th, I talked to him because I was starting to get worried. Um, things had quieted down in China, but the r not and all the evidence that I saw was not changing the way I thought it would and the death toll was pretty horrific and he was pretty frank that it could get really bad here and I asked him how bad and he said I don't know a million and I, I actually just I was in disbelief um yeah. so I remember like the first week of like so in the first week of February I, I I came home I started doing my own research I couldn't disagree with the assessment all I had was hope and so that's when we started prepping you know going to Costco, we have a year's worth of toilet paper. Um, I, I shifted very rapidly from hopeful to terrified and hoping I was wrong. And, you know, every week I think more and more people joined me. And um, here we are where it's, you know, our, our prediction or our fears are coming to life. Every morning, I think those, those of us who are paying attention, which is almost everybody now, wake up and we hear new and scary things about, you know, um, dermatologists being recruited into the ER in Boston, things like that, because they have to be. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was an interesting dynamic. So it's sort of like, I, I mean, I, I guess the, the, the thing that people talk about with the, you know, you mentioned the r not and every person infects two people and so on and so forth. Uh, the, of course, the nature of that sort of growth is uh, at first it happens kind of slowly. You know, one person infects two and then two people infect four and so on and so forth. And, you know, like 
if you do that 10 times, you're only at about 500 people, right? Uh, which didn't seem so bad. But then you do it another 10 times and it's 500,000 people, right? Uh, actually, probably it's more than that. I'm, I'm rounding down a little bit. Uh, and then you do it another 10 times, it's 500 million people or, or whatever. Yeah. So, I, you know, th- that obviously is something that uh, is kind of scary. And I feel like that's been happening with the virus, but it was also happening with people who were really freaked out about it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I know I know in my own just in my own circles, you know, there were a few people uh, who were like back in January were really into like, you know, we need to prepare and prep or whatever. And then uh, that, you know, they kind of uh, infected other people, you know, maybe each of them infected two people with like the desire to prep <laughs> and so on and so forth. And then, but even, you know, even towards the beginning of, of uh, the end of February, the beginning of March, um, like it was still probably kind of a marginal mm-hmm. thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it was a little, little weird if you were taking your kids out of school or, yeah. I, you know, I went and bought a 20 pound bag of, of rice. Uh, oh, the Japanese, the Japanese sushi rice, right? Uh, yes, correct. Yeah. That's great, dude. I think, I think we're all going to learn to love that. Yes. Yeah. When I, when I did that, the like stores were empty and I felt a little silly. And then of course, of the last week, all of a sudden there's like, four or five block lines of people lining up with their shopping carts to get, you know, food and uh, toilet paper. For some reason, I I don't entirely understand why Mm -hmm. that was the big, Mm -hmm. as big item as it was. But um, so, but, you know, I just, so I mentioned that, that like, that's the same dynamic with the virus, right? (laughs) You know, it's a little, it's a little, it's a little, and then all of a sudden it's a lot. Things can change really, really fast. And that's what, that's what we're seeing now. But Actually, even now, if you think about it, compared to some of the projections of where we could be, we're the scary part is we're still on the early part of the curve, right? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so you know, just to, we'll, uh, let's go into the science in a bit, but let, let me just the sociology. I will say um, the big turnaround for the public awareness, and not everybody, because there were still people that were in denial, was uh, Donald Trump's um, uh, speech. On Wednesday, the thirteenth, um, uh, a week and a half ago from when I, we're recording right now, and you know that even the day or two before, and and I live in a quote blue, mostly blue area, if not 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 exclusively though, but you know um, people here were not big fans of Trump, but you know even they took his acceptance um, as a signal that something had changed, and that's when. Um, the panic buying yeah. started having. So it was the 11th, I believe, um, was his speech. That was when the panic buying happened here, March 11th. Um, and I know that, uh, like, you know, basically from the second half, from the middle of February onward, I would have, like, people direct messaging me that I knew who, for whatever reason, trusted me, and they asked me if they should be worried. And I said, be worried. And I remember on February 20, 28th, I got, I mean, I kind of got tired of the direct messages, so I just expressed that I'm freaking out. I didn't elaborate, but I wanted people to know, yes, I'm freaking out. I've been freaking out for weeks. And um, I actually got a direct message, a couple of them more recently, that from scientists who, after they saw my tweet, they decided to investigate. And then they started freaking out, and they told a bunch of people. And I didn't even know about this. But, um, you know, it's, it's basically like, 
it's been spreading like a cultural epidemic. And then you have these external shocks like Donald Trump's address um, and these policies. It's the, the parallel between the epidemic of contagion of panic and terror and the virus is a very weird and um, almost poetic thing, the parallelism, right? Um, but, you know, this isn't, I mean, there will probably be some poetry and great literature and art that come out of the 2020 coronavirus um, pandemic. But um, in the current, I think we will all know somebody who dies. That's my prediction. All of us will know somebody. Um, mostly they'll be old, but not exclusively. Like there's this emphasis on, well, it's only the old people, but that's 60 to 80% so far in the, in the previous cases. In Italy, it's a little more. In some other areas, it's a little less. But um, I think we'll all know people. Um, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I'm double checking on things on my life insurance, not to be morbid, but, uh, you know, get your affairs in order. So let's maybe, uh, I mean, uh, uh, I think it's good to review, uh, you know, all of that, you know, how we got here exactly. But may, so let, let's let's talk a little bit about what we might expect going forward. Of course, now we are. Uh, it does seem like, you know, after a little bit of uh, dithering by various governments, particularly in the West, now, you know, they, they are beginning to take things more seriously. Uh, there are some countries like France that are basically on total lockdown uh, where you can't leave the house unless you're going to buy groceries or to the doctor or something like that. Um we're yeah, and I think that I think that literally just in the last few minutes, there's a uh, this is on Friday that there's a story coming out about New York that Cuomo is about to announce, I assume, a statewide ban on non-essential businesses uh, and they're calling it a lockdown. Matilda's law. Yeah. Yeah. And, they, and California, I believe, yesterday mm -hmm. uh, did, did something mm -hmm. like that. You know, L.A. did I uh, like a mandatory one. And then California, this whole state of California did one that uh, I think I'm not sure if it's like they said, well, you, you know, we're going to do a lockdown, but we're not really going to enforce it or whatever. It was a little it was a little vague, but uh, definitely there are some parts that are that are doing that. And then even I don't like I'm not sure if there are any any schools that are still operation <laughs> in, in operation in the United States in person, uh, you know. Maybe there's a state somewhere uh, that I haven't heard of, but most mm -hmm. of the schools are shut down. Uh, most, you know, uh, a lot of states have uh, put uh, bans on large events. Uh, that you know, a lot of the churches and in large parts of the, you know here in Austin, the uh, uh, you know the Catholic diocese they're not doing public services anymore. Uh, uh, the Bars and restaurants are closed or dine in or, or carry out only, um, you know, so they, there's a lot of serious measures. Um, th th there definitely has been uh, some talk about like, well, is this is this necessary? Is this going uh, too far? Because, of course, there are some like serious economic consequences of all this. Mm -hmm. Public officials are definitely now taking this seriously. And we have seen, I think, from... Uh, China and then also in South Korea, that it is possible when you have an out of control outbreak to get the outbreak 
under control through the use of these sorts of extreme measures. Uh, you know, um, China, of mm. course, is a little, little bit of a, uh, you have to put a little bit of an asterisk there because it's not an open society and you can't always trust what uh, is, is being said by the government. But I do think that it, it does seem like uh, they have gotten the outbreak under control there. And then also same thing in South Korea, uh, at least, at least in the short term, whether that's sustainable, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's um, review really quickly. Um, some no the type of numbers that I ran in the middle of February, that was a very primitive model, but really um, more complicated models don't get you that much more. Um, you know, for at least the purposes of a podcast. So, you know, I was um, looking at the American population of, you know, it's about like 330 million right now. Um, we don't know if the census is going to happen, obviously, but that's our estimate, right? <laughs> um, so let's assume that 30% of the population gets infected, which is not implausible for some with, something with an R naught of around two, around two, right? Um, and that the case rate fatality, which basically means you get infected, you know, what percentage of people die? Let's assume 0.5%, which is actually a pretty optimistic take. Um, I didn't remember thinking that it was particularly optimistic at the time, but hey, that was over a month ago. Um, we know more that, you know, seems optimistic. So I got an estimate of 495,000 deaths. It's probably going to be over six months. That's a lot of people that die. Now, there's 600,000 people that die of cancer every year, but that's about the same amount every single month. And the thing with cancer is we kind of have a way to treat it that goes through a particular cycle based on what stage you're in. And people can continue to work and be productive even with cancer, especially if you know they have early stages. Um, this is going to hit kind of with like a very peaked amplitude Um I think most listeners know about the issues with the hospitals. As we're talking, there's already things that are happening in Boston and New York and New Orleans that are very concerning about hospitals being overrun. Um, I've heard things, you guys have heard things, listeners, by the time this podcast will go out, will have heard a lot of things. Um, so even with this conservative, and I think unfortunately it's, it is conservative, um, we're seeing a lot of of deaths in these fixed parameter models. Now I say they're fixed parameters because over the next two months, whether through behavior or through some miracle drug or something like that, um, something that we don't anticipate, these parameters could change some, okay? Like, you know, if you could get a drug that reduces the case rate fatality a lot, then, you know, we're, we're gonna go into a better territory. Or if our behavior modification is so extreme that the R naught, that the spread starts to decline below one, then it's going to peak. And then people are going to go through the course of the disease. And so the number of people with the disease at any given time will decline. And that's, you know, depending on what number, which day you believe, like that's what's happening in China. And that's probably what's happening in South Korea. Um, Singapore had a recent spike, but um, I noticed as of yesterday, and I haven't looked at the newspaper today because there's so much to keep track of. Um, most of the spike were people from foreign countries that came into Singapore. Can we talk a little bit about the different approaches and how we might be able to get this under control? And this is, you know, for instance, the this whole idea of the self-distancing, the self-quarantining, and now potentially lockdowns. 
how do we get to that point where that ends? And I think that in my own, my own opinion, I think that that ends when politicians find that the, the death rate, the mortality rate is at acceptable levels, um, which is, you know, that, that's something above zero, but I don't know what that is. What are the, what mm-hmm. are the ways, and, you know, and just off the top of my head, and I'm, I'm absolutely no expert in this, but there's obviously this whole concept of flattening the curve, sort of, sort of slowing the transmission. I'll let you talk about that. There's the vaccine, there's a cure, uh, there's treatment. And maybe that's where this whole idea of the president's press conference yesterday about this uh, malaria drug that maybe improves the treatment. Can you walk us through some of those in, in you know, sort of quick fashion of what are the mm-hmm. potential options out there that we might pursue and maybe learning from what some of the other countries, what they've tried that mm-hmm. may or may not have done well? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is, unfortunately, we can't learn too much because, you know, COVID-19 is so new, unfortunately. So a lot of the things that we say, a lot of the inference and conjectures we make are based on very spotty data because that's all that we have, right? So the easiest thing to do, or not the easiest, but the most straightforward is to allow herd immunity to build, to let it run its course. And that's what the British government was suggesting last week. And then they realized their model was going to lead to millions of deaths in a nation of less than 100 million. And so they decided to back up. So it looks like most people don't have to go to intensive care. Um, most, and they will certainly have short-term immunity as the highest likelihood based on previous diseases that are similar with coronaviruses. SARS-CoV, SARS-CoV-1, um, SARS, is actually a version of this same uh, virus. This is a mutated version. It's a different one, SARS-CoV-2. That's the virus. COVID-19 is a disease progression. Um, in any case, it looks like people who um, have the disease will get immunity. And so, you know, eventually there's going to be enough people who can't get infected. So remember, r naught is based on the idea of how many people are you going to infect? Well, if half the population or 60% of the population, assuming an r naught of two, is uh, immune because they've had it, then it gets to the point where it'll spread less and less in terms of you know, one person that gets infected will spread it to less than one person. And that means the trajectory is downward, like the exponential works the other way, right? So that's one option. Um, The death rate is going to be too high for that for most people, I think. Flattening the curve is the idea that, yes, we will get to a relatively high point of people being infected. But you take the distribution that's highly peaked, right, that has like a high amplitude, and you stretch it out into the future so that there are people who are getting infected a year from now instead of a month from now. And so the proportion of people who go to the ICU, which is always a small minority, but it's not trivial, um, it gets stretched out over a year, which means that the medical system can handle it. The main criticism of this is that, you know, yes, you can reduce the amplitude, but um, the numbers just don't work out. It still gets overwhelmed like a dam that gets overtopped. It doesn't matter if it's overtopped a little or a lot, um, the water's still going over the dam. And so um, that's the criticism of flattening the curve. And then the final um, model or general idea of, of adaptive behaviors is this self-quarantine lockdown, where if you don't interact with people, well, obviously, um, you're not going to spread it. 
And so uh, the flattening the curve, I think a lot of that is, is, you know, focusing on social distancing, which basically means you stay far away from people. And social distancing is not self-quarantine, right? If you're like six to 10 feet away from people, you're not self-quarantining. If you're not shaking hands, um, if you're wearing masks, you can still be out and about. And so in Korea and in Japan and in these countries, they do social distancing in a way where the economy can still flourish now. <laughs> Some people would argue Japanese and Finns, they do social distancing every day of their lives. And so, you know, there could be like cultural differences that are causing these issues. So many people are pointing out in Southern and Europe and in um, France, people do cheek kisses. That is not social distancing. Mm. And that is really great to spread disease if it's asymptomatic, which is what some people are saying. Um, so I think where we are right now is we're going towards really intense self-quarantine and lockdown. And I think the reason that we're doing that right now is you want to kind of dampen and mitigate huge localized flare-ups and keep it under control and allow the system to kind of adjust and adapt. Um, but I am not someone that believes that we can do this for 18 months. We're going to starve. Do you think that, you know, because I've heard people say we have to do this now because there were, the, the window is closing. Is is that why people are seem to, I mean, there's very little pushback at this. Restaurants are closing and very little people, very few people are, are pushing back at this. They seem to have this idea of a 14-day quarantine in their head. Do you think that you have any idea of how long this type of aggressive self-quarantining or maybe even these things like what Cuomo is about to do with the lockdown. Do you have any idea how long we should expect this to last? Um, you know, I don't have any inside knowledge, but I, I'm very skeptical that it's not going to last through the end of April um, because I think that's probably what's going to be needed. Um, you know, I'm talking to people and I'm going to make a few calls and, you know, get more clear on this because it's important to me. I mean, I'm mostly working from home and I, you know, still have work, but um we're all dependent on other people in the economy. Um, so uh, I, we're, there's self-interested reasons that it not last too long, but it lasts long enough. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I want to say is like, we use these models and we make these projections, but um, you know, in biology and in nature, a lot of things aren't linear, like they rapidly shoot up and then they hit saturation points. And so, um, you know, logistic curve is kind of like that exponential growth up and then like, slow down and then it's a plateau um you know we we can have situations where something is a different parameter um, or the parameter is dynamic so i was hoping that the r naught would just drop from 2.5 to like 1.2 or something um so there are some ideas and hypotheses of how the r naught can vary due to environment now we don't know for sure and we still have really really yeah. Are you talking about like temperature, humidity? Yeah, that's what it is. So that's one of them. Um, so I don't want to get into like the technical details. There's some evidence that basically if this is aerosolized, which again, there's a debate between the WHO and the CDC, whether it is, if this is aerosolized, if the absolute humidity is high, then the droplets are big that you sneeze out because they get big because the humidity is high and then they drop. So that reduces the rate of spread. So that reduces R0. It doesn't necessarily reduce the case fatality rate, but it reduces the rate of spread. And so let's say that the R0 is 1.5 or 1.25 in the middle of summer in Houston. That's much easier to imagine social distancing getting it below one than if it's 2.5. Yeah. 
right? And so um, that's a possibility. I, if you had to put me, if you had to like make me choose, I do believe that the absolute humidity has an effect. And when I say absolute humidity, there's a lot of different papers and ideas of how the weather affects it. The issue with temperature is the hotter it gets, the more the air can have, um, can 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 have water in it, right? Can just there's more water vapor in the air. And so even if it's dry, if it's 97 degrees, it might have more water in the air than if it feels kind of moist, but it's 45. Like the, So, the, you know, the intuition can sometimes be off. Unfortunately, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, and it's a mild area that has summer drought. So um, that might not be the best. Um, I do think it's perhaps not un- coincidental that one of the earliest outbreaks are in Seattle. Um, and so... That's one parameter. Another parameter is density. Um, United States has a lot of exurban areas, a lot of sprawl. Um, intuitively, that would reduce the R naught. Um, place like Italy, it's very dense, and also the cities are very overgrown and organic, and it's cheek by jowl. Um, China, the cities aren't old, but the rapid development in these high rises, um, you know, leads to a certain way of life that's conducive to the spread of infectious diseases. So I do suspect that in the United States, in lower density areas, um, there will be more ability to control. This is not good for New York City or Boston. Um, the Bosniwash zone in particular, I think, is the closest that we have in this country to the style of life that you have in Europe. And um, if you open up any map right now, Europe is is really where it's growing. In East Asia... East Asian societies, they have it under rough control. I understand that there are secondary outbreaks that are happening, but um, South Korea, Singapore, like civilization is continuing there. I mean, it's, I think we're at a stage where like you see YouTube videos of people at a mall in Singapore and it's just amazing to you to see them living their regular life. So um, density is, is one parameter, but there's other issues like comorbidities. We don't know the details, but a lot of them, and, and I will tell listeners here, uh, my wife, uh, she, she, she's fluent in Italian, and she notices that in Italy, they say specifically, almost all deaths now are being attributed to COVID-19. So they might be inflating their death rate. There's all these details, um, whereas like in other places, they have to make sure that it's COVID-19. In Italy, they just assume it's COVID-19. So like something like 99% of the deaths in Italy have had comorbidities. What does that mean? Well, hypertension, one. Mm. Guess what? 30% of Americans have hypertension. Um, we have... You know, frankly, a lot of issues with obesity here, and that's correlated with a lot of comorbidities. So that's a parameter that might work against us, right? Um, there are probably, I suspect, um, you know, group differences in susceptibility, but it doesn't look like they're big enough that that they have a major effect. Like Iran, Italy, China, those are very genetically different. You know, um, if you open, if you guys, you know, listening, anyone wants to Google, Google um, coronavirus COVID nineteen global cases by the Center for Systems Science and Engineering uh, at Johns Hopkins. They have a map and you can see uh, just where it's blown up. And you can see that, you know, they're like all through Africa, there's very few cases. This could be testing, but um, at some point people show up in the ICU. I mean, that's so when I, I'm asking about India and it, people are really scared because um, people have come back from abroad and they're not, they're not going along with their quarantine. You know, it's not like it's a police state. Um, they're just going about their business, and people are really scared of community transmission there. But um, right now, the ICUs are not overwhelmed. 
I'm here in the United States, um, New York City and Boston, I'm hearing some scary things. Um, you know, people who are pathologists or radiologists that are being told to come into the hospital and get orientation um, for emergency work. So they're, they're anticipating a surge. Um, right now, there are, 13, there are 1,377 confirmed cases in Washington, the state of Washington. But, um, you know, only 74 deaths. So we'll see. I mean, right now, the deaths really haven't taken off. But um, we only have 210 deaths um, confirmed due to COVID-19 um, as of this recording. And so a lot of, um, de- I won't say denialists, but people that think that this is overdone, they will like to quote that. And I hope they're right. I hope their their smug attitude is vindicated. It's just the trend line, though, has always been in the opposite for the last month and a half. Okay. On that note, can we talk a little bit about treatment? So we've, we've talked primarily about how do we slow the transmission. Let's talk about treatment because yesterday there was this big press conference. Of, uh, the president talked about uh, chloroquine. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, do you know what the, much about that particular medication, mm-hmm. what its background is? And and I guess there is it has been used um, in other countries up to this point for COVID-19. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, like, I don't really know that. I mean, I've been hearing about this for a month. I haven't been focused on treatment too much because, um, you know, my skill set is more towards population data analysis. But um, I will say so it's malaria treatment, um, I think. And uh, uh it's been talked about for a while. Um, I've heard it fr- first from France, um, and I think that's partly because of malaria treatment. France has, you know, a lot of involvement in Africa. Um, my understanding, like looking at the Twitters, like people I trust, is we don't know. Ultimately, we don't know. We don't have the large sample sizes. There is some. Um, there, I mean, ultimately, the publication could be just p hacking or something like that. I mean, we don't know for sure. I'm, I'm sure the researchers are sincere. Um, right now, we are at a stage where we're desperate and we want a silver bullet um, to be able to, you know, prevent this truck from running us over. Um, so I'm not going to I don't know if it works. I hope it does. I don't think that there's any fraud involved here. Um, I've been hearing about this for a month. Um, there are I mean, just, you know, people should just do the research. There's pl- there's things in South Korea they're working on. Um, they're working on vaccines everywhere. The issue with vaccines is that they do need to go through testing because, you know, there is a history of vaccines that are rolled out too quickly, having huge side effects. And then like you're down the line, you have more problems than you did. This whole thing with the chloroquine, it it feels almost like an episode of house where it's like, well, we don't know if this is going to work, but we just, just let's go ahead and try it on the patient. And it's, it's, that's, so that's one thing when it's on a, when you're talking about treatment of known cases, but I guess that's the difference with the vaccine is, you'd be actually giving something to people that don't have the symptoms yet, right? So there'd be part of the difference. Yeah, yeah. And right now the death toll isn't huge. Um, You know, a lot of people are telling me and us and you, I'm sure, you know, they had a really bad flu in February or late January. I I have a friend. um, It's someone that a lot of listeners would know, but I'm not going to say who it is. Um, Not anybody in libertarian conservative world, but maybe adjacent is the right way to say. Um, They are convinced that they had it, that they – this person and um, a, a teen in the household of four um, had it and in mid-February. And I mentioned offhand to them, 
oh, well, you know, um, I have a friend who's in L.A., and he said a lot of people seem to be really sick in late January and early February. This person lives in the Pacific Northwest. And they were telling me, oh, that's interesting. I was in L.A. for five days at the beginning of February. You know, so, I mean, they told me the story before, you know, I knew that they had been in L.A., and I brought that up. So there's just a lot of things where I think it's been spreading around. A lot of people are probably immune. Um, maybe the case rate case fatality rate isn't nearly as extreme depending on how many asymptomatic people you have now i'm sure i think josiah um, and i have talked about this there's a paper out there that there's really high false positive rate in the testing which means Mm -hmm. that oh well maybe they're not asymptomatic maybe they didn't have it at all what we really need and everyone says this is we need an antibody test that will show if you had it and then if you had it and you're not ill that means and you know you probably had a long time ago. That means you're probably immune. I mean, you're immune and it's like you're Superman. You can just go out among the living. Um, one thing that I joked about is uh, in this exchange with a friend, I'm like, you know, do you guys know the movie? I am legend. Yes. Okay. But you yeah. know that the novel, do you guys know that the novel was totally different in a lot of ways? Right. Well, it's also, uh, I think they've made three movies out of the, there was yes. a Charlton Heston movie, the Omega man. Yes. Uh, yeah. No. And so, but, but in, in the novel, um, it turns out that he is the legend because he is viewed as a monster by the society of vampires that has emerged with immunity to some virus. Mm. And he's a monster that they talk about because he wanders around during the day, killing them when they're asleep. Right. So he's like the vampire of the vampire. Yes. He's, so, he, so at the end they're, they're about to execute him and everyone's all the, all the vampires. And so now they're also starting to be able to be immune to the light. So they're adapting as like a new type of human. They're outside like the jail cell he's held and they want to see him because they've heard about this guy or this creature. Like he is the monster. Anyway, I'm only bringing this up because all these COVID-19 immune people, um, they are immune to this new pandemic. And so they have the power to go out and work and keep our society going. Um, Frankly, it looks like the lowest case fatality rate an illness rate is 16 to 18. I mean, mm-hmm. we might have to do something where draft the teens, have them have them do a lot of basic things right now. I mean, the other option is, um, frankly, just write off the boomers. Easy now. I mean, people are saying it, but that, that that's really the other option. I mean, do you want do you want? I mean, you know, Heather McDonald wrote a wrote a blog post, and she didn't explicitly say that, but. Um, you know, she, I mean, a lot of people are saying, and until recently, Laura Ingram, I think, was saying, well, I mean, these people are old anyway. I mean, Ann Coulter said that, you know, right. okay, like, they said it. That is that is the other option. Like, we are expending resources on all these people that are at the tail end of their life. Should we? Um, I'm actually not, like, shockingly offended. I think people should just say it because I think people are thinking it. Um, and we have to do the math of, like, what is the cost versus benefit here. Um you know, we do we do like take a huge mortality hit during the flu every year. It's just that it's stretched out over many months and it's usually like five to like, you know, 30,000. The problem here is we're talking like being optimistic, honestly, 10 times that um, something like, you know, we're, ta- we're talking like really, really if it's below 100,000, I would be super happy in six months. You know, mm-hmm. if it's below a million, I'd be like, uh, OK hopefully we got through it, you know? Um, So there's going to be cure. I think, you know, technology and innovation, as long as we can maintain civilization and keep it going, 
um, it'll produce some results um, that I think will change. Um, it will bend the curve to, you know, borrow a, a term that was popular 10 years ago, bend the curve. And in South Korea, they bent the curve, um, even though there are pops up here and there. Um, in Singapore, they bent the curve. In some of these poor countries, it hasn't had traction, perhaps, because the R-naught is lower um, for some environmental reasons. There's also other reasons. I think we were talking about this um, before we were recording, but there is some evidence that blood group O is less susceptible to being infected. And then once they're infected, they're less likely to go critical. Just like um, there's a fair amount of evidence that men have a higher mortality rate than women, which is in line with a lot of evidence that our immune system is not as strong as, you know, we men, you know, because we're all identified as men here, um, that our immune system is not as strong as women, um, people with XX, whatever, like, you know, um, and so like, there's going to be differences like that. And um, we need to keep an eye on it. Like, like Chile is 80% blood group O. The indigenous peoples of the new world are almost all O. Um, o is usually assumed to be ancestral with A and B being new mutations um, that are produced for resistance to certain diseases, but usually new mutations have side effects or trade-offs. And so that seems like COVID-19, um, they might be more vulnerable, particular A, we don't have enough data for B. Um, B is the smallest fraction, but um, it could be that there are areas where the r naught is just naturally going to be lower because of the climate, the density, and perhaps some genetic, you know, susceptibilities of the population. So I can't say that there's like a one size fits all. Um, what's happening in Northern Italy to some extent is kind of mysterious and kind of not like it's an extremely old population, one of the oldest in the world. Um, it's very dense. If the weather hypothesis holds, its weather is perfect for the spread of COVID-19, not too cold, not too hot. And, um, you know, it, it could have been a perfect storm. It's Chinese satellite. Um, economically recently um, I saw a tweet thread um, and like we've been talking about the science let's talk about the sociology for a little while I saw a tweet thread um, that was linked to by an Italian scientist by an Italian friend in Bergamo and they were talking through the tweet thread about what was going on and how they're handling it and all the bodies and then they in the middle without any note of how it was strange they said and our Chinese health advisors said and then they continued. So that's one of the social outcomes where it's not strange to talk about Chinese health advisors in Italy, you know? So, I yeah. mean, I, I think China is, um, let's be frank, they, I think they're ready to take advantage of this opportunity. The, the You know, the people are saying it's like the arsonist is coming to help out with the fire. So do you have any, uh, you know, we, we haven't, I, we've talked about everything else, but I think besides the idea of a, a vaccine and a cure, do you have any sense of what the time, because I mean, ultimately that's what we were all hoping and praying for, but well, not you since you don't pray, <laughs> but the, Josiah and I are. Um, so do you have any sense of the timing of a- You pray so I don't have to, man. <laughs> there you go. Uh, do you have any sense of the timing? I, I don't have a, I don't have a strong sense. I'm hearing things about like, could be months, could be 18 months. The variance is high. Um, I, yeah. One thing is like apparently vaccines are a little hard to develop for coronaviruses. Um, and so, um, but we do have a strong motivation. Um, you know, is one thing is, um, this is international. The effort is international. Uh, Israelis are working on it. Americans are working on it. Europeans are working on it. Um, you know, the scientists... And, and funding, funding won't be a problem. No. I mean, whether it's private investors or governments, the capital. Yeah, everything is everything is transitioning to COVID. Um, you know, this is having a weird sociological effect on uh, 
the scientists that I know in genomics where, um, you know, I have a friend, Matt Hahn at University of Indiana. He said many years ago, or, you know, in his field in evolutionary genomics, we don't really need to produce any more. He said this like three years ago. We don't need to produce more data. We need more analysis of the data, more people to actually understand the data. Well, we're testing that experiment because there's going to be no data produced on anything besides COVID-19, um, the SARS coronavirus 2 for a while, you know, for at least like three, four, five, six months. Um, all these scientists are at home and all they're going to do is analyze the data that they have from their work and continue on their research um, as much as they can. Um, I think we're having this weird, you know, cultural moment where everyone's talking about COVID and yet they have other things to do if they have a job still. And so um, I see just like, you know, people talking about center entertainment gossip or other things periodically. And I'm like, mm, that's interesting. Like, you know, life goes on. And, you know, there's people with other illnesses and other concerns. And um, my sister is um, pregnant, you know. I have friends who are pregnant. I have a friend who's due in in a month and a half. I have another friend who's due in two months for a scheduled C-section because she has placenta previa and there's no, there's no, like, possibility of natural birth. Her husband is a really old friend, and he texted me, and we had to have a really hard discussion um, because I said, you know, do not trust institutions, trust people, have a really good relationship with your OBGYN so that she does not forget you. Because in two months, we don't know where we're going to be. Um, I would I would guess that we are above, um, we are beyond the crest of the of the pandemic in the United States in two months. Um, and we're, so we're coming back to normal, but I'm not sure that we will be. And coming back to normal is going to be a long, hard road. And so if you look at the distribution, this is going to be a massive, um, so it's going to be left skewed. It's going to be a massive spike in, in illness and in like resource allocation to this particular issue. And then I think we'll slowly decline as we go back to normal. I think into the summer, we'll still be COVID-19 like obsessives and then probably by next summer um, we're going to have some more perspective but by next summer you know we're going to have lost people and I think a lot of people are not going to forget because of that um, I understand that during World War II we had huge mortalities and you know there there were pandemics in the past but um, and people in China have lived through the Great Relief Forward so this isn't unique it's just that we are a, a soft people now who are not used to death and who are not happy um, with just illness and difficulties and exigent circumstances. Um, so I think it says something about our culture as much as it says about, um, you know, the science and the epidemiology. You know, just to just to circle back, the maybe the the, uh, the summing up point, uh, I would say about this lockdown is you know, there, so there was for a while, for like three days, the uh, United Kingdom, of course, they had their plan that they were going to just uh, let the virus spread and try and achieve herd immunity that way, rather than trying to take some sort of extreme measures to stop the spread. And on one level, that's a crazy idea, you know, because like, as you mentioned, they abandoned it uh, when they found out that millions of people would die. Uh, but there, there is a logic behind it, and the logic behind it is, um, yes, in the short term, if you do a lockdown, you can't, you know, it's been shown if you do something extreme enough and shut down your economy, you can stop the spread of the virus. 
But uh, the concern is that as soon as you let up on that lockdown, the virus will just come back, right? And so you're just kind of delaying the inevitable at an enormous cost uh, in order to Mm -hmm. do that. My perspective is that the most valuable thing that you get from the lockdown is time, right? So, you know, one thing that has come up repeatedly in our discussion is, well, we don't, we don't know, right? We don't know about uh, the different medical treatments. We don't know about temperature. Uh, we don't necessarily know what the, you know, are there, are there a lot of asymptomatic people? Uh, are there few? Are, you know, what's the mortality rate? There's, there's so many things that uh, we don't know uh, that we might be able to learn if we have a little bit more time. And then also, uh, thankfully, uh, you know, over the last uh, week or so, there has been, you have started to see uh, kind of major actions in terms of, okay, let's increase our capacity, right? Let's build a lot more ventilator, you know, because if the issue is the system gets overloaded because you don't have enough ventilators, enough beds, let's make a lot more beds. Let's make a lot more ventilators. Uh, I, I'm upset that that we weren't didn't start doing stuff like that six weeks ago given that we had advanced warning from other countries uh but it is good that we're doing that now and it's quite possible that you could have something that we could learn something uh, about the virus or how it can be treated or how it can be stopped that will break our way uh you know if we just have a little bit more time so that is kind of you know where I'm coming from in terms of the lockdowns and, and other things. Yeah, no, that I totally agree. I mean, we're we're just buying some time to figure out a way to um, adapt, you know, tackle this problem. Um, and let's be entirely frank: until this, until this week, um, not everybody was on the same page. Not everyone was equally alarmed. Even some of the people that were alarmed were not focusing on this they were still focusing on other things so now our society our culture our state our civilization is focused on one thing beating this virus and we need a little time um so that chaos doesn't break out immediately because if everyone gets infected at the same time and many people start dying at the same time it's just too much to take all right well uh then i think we should probably end it there uh, Razib, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure, I think. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, and for everybody else out there, be safe. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to scold you with all the typical recommendations. You know what they are. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Irving Cowboys.